This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, a rerun from 2015, The Fire This Time. There's a cruel irony in having a rerun of an episode from another time the murder of a black man by the police had people on the streets in such massive numbers. But here we are again. As you know by now, protests have been loud and ongoing across the country. After, on May 25th in Minneapolis, George Floyd was killed by Derek Chauvin, a white police officer who put his knee on Floyd's neck until he suffocated after accusing him of using a fake $20 bill. Only three months after Ahmaud Arbery was shot to death in Glynn County, Georgia, by two white vigilantes, one of whom was a retired police officer, who accused the jogging man of having committed or wanting to commit a burglary. The protests that prompted the Poetry Foundation to make this episode were those in Ferguson, after Michael Brown, on August 9, 2014, was shot and killed by Darren Wilson, a white police officer who'd accused Brown of having stolen a pack of cigarillos, only a month after Eric Garner was killed in Staten Island, when Daniel Pantaleo, a white police officer, wrestled him to the ground and choked him to death, despite Garner saying 11 times, I can't breathe, after having accused Garner of selling single cigarettes. In this rerun, we'll look at yet another time when the nation erupted in protests after a black man was murdered. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. The assassination of Dr. King on April 4, 1968, sparked fury in black communities all over the country, but especially in Chicago. When the protests turned violent, 11 people died, thousands were arrested, dozens of buildings burned. Then, like now, the president sent in the National Guard and then the army to quell these quote-unquote riots. Essentially, people were rebelling, I refuse to use the word riot, against the injustice that they had dealt with ever since their birth. Riots are understood in mainstream America in 1968 as a universally terrible thing. They're not understood as the language of the unheard. They're understood as something scary and destructive. This is Elizabeth Alexander, preeminent poet and scholar of African-American studies. And before that, you heard Haki Madhubuti, influential poet and member of the Black Arts Movement, which founded its own presses and magazines, such as Black Expressions, the magazine Madhubuti edited. After the transformative events of 1968, he was looking for the right poet to commission for the magazine. I felt then that we needed a more seasoned voice to really look at what was happening in the streets. He went with Gwendolyn Brooks. Brooks was born in Kansas, but she grew up and spent her entire life living in and writing about Chicago. She was well-established, won the Pulitzer Prize in the 1950s, but the events of the 1960s had radicalized her. She dropped her longtime publisher, Harper and Rowe, in favor of black presses, putting her weight where she felt it mattered. The entire country is in the midst of tremendous upheaval, and artists of conscience, Brooks foremost among them, are saying, how can my work serve and speak to this moment? I'll get out of the way now. 
and let the previous producer of Poetry Off the Shelf, Curtis Fox, take it from here. So you'll hear Curtis, Elizabeth Alexander, and Haki Madabuti, plus Gwendolyn Brooks, who'll be reading her own poem, Riot. And we start with the epigraph, that quote from Dr. King. A riot is the language of the unheard, Martin Luther King. What, what does this mean, the language of the unheard? Who's not being heard and who are they not being heard by? Where does power reside? Where has power been abused? How will people, how will the people, as it were, be heard? The poem begins by describing its one and only character, a rich white guy by the name of John Cabot. John Cabot, out of Wilma, once a Wycliffe, All white-blue rose below his golden hair, wrapped richly in ripe linen and ripe wool, almost forgot his jaguar and lake bluff, almost forgot Grand Tully, which is the best thing that ever happened to Scotch, almost forgot the sculpture at the Richard Gray and Distelheim, the kidney pie at Maxim's, the Grenadine de Boeuf at Maison Henri. Okay, it's rude to interrupt a poem, I know, but let's talk about that stanza a bit before moving on. John Cabot. Cabot is a very prominent name. So here we have someone who is a descendant of a founding father. We have a Mayflower person. We have a Harvard person. John Cabot, out of Wilma, once a Wycliffe. And John Wycliffe was essentially an English forerunner of the Protestant Reformation. This history is critical if you're going to really totally understand how she's positioning uh, John Cabot. It was not only a, a, a cultural and a racial difference, it was a class difference. He, he was of the upper class. All white-blue rose below his golden hair, wrapped richly in right linen and right wool, almost forgot his jaguar and lake bluff. Now, jaguar in the black community too at this time was almost a foreign, it is a foreign language. Nobody drove a Jaguar. And of course, Lake Bluff, that's an area of vacations and stuff that we never get to. Almost forgot Grand Tully, which is the best thing that ever happened to Scotch. Scotch is not our drink, okay? Almost forgot the sculpture at the Richard Gray and Distelheim, the kidney pie at Maxim's. The kidney pie at Maxim's, Maxim's being in Paris, you know, this is a traveled person. Kidney pie, I don't even know what kidney pie is. At Maxim, but Maxim is a, is a very expensive, exclusive restaurant. The Grenadine de Boeuf at Maison Henri. John Cabot stands for uh, wealth and, and, and privilege and whiteness that are unexamined. Some might think she sets him up as a straw man, but I think she sets him up as the problems of concentrated privilege in our society. So here's where we're at in the poem. John Cabot, in his Jaguar, has almost forgotten all his privileges and luxuries. The kidney pie at Maxime's. The grenadine de boeuf at Maison Henri. Because something quite unusual is happening around him. Because the Negroes were coming down the street. Because the poor were sweaty and unpretty. Not like two dainty Negroes in Winnetka. And they were coming toward him in rough ranks, in seas, in windsweep. They were black and loud, and not detainable, and not discreet. In other words, John Cabot has found himself in the middle of a riot. 
because the Negroes were coming down the street, what? What is going to happen? There's this sense of anticipation, which is the question mark, the unknown, the wild hope of riot. Because the poor were sweaty and unpretty, not like two dainty Negroes in Winnetka. What does that refer to? She's talking about black people, Winnetka being a wealthy Chicago suburb. I've lived in Chicago for over 60 years, and I still haven't been to Winnetka. And they were coming toward him in rough ranks. Now, rough ranks, other people might say a mob. But again, the poet in Gwendolyn Brooks, rough ranks. I love how um, these people, it turns to this wonderful natural imagery, in seas, in, seas, in windsweep. In windsweep. This is a force of nature. This is, this is history. It's happening. They were black and loud and not detainable and not discreet. So detainable and discreet takes you back to the dainty Negroes, especially with those Ds, dainty, detainable, discreet. When you only let one in or you only let a couple in, then you feel that the Negro problem is contained. But for John Cabot, in the wrong place at the wrong time, the Negro problem is suddenly not contained, and he's revolted by the black people coming toward him. Gross, gross, que tu grossier, John Cabot itched instantly beneath the nourished white that told his story of glory to the world. Don't let it touch me, the blackness, Lord, he whispered to any handy angel in the sky. Any handy angel. So he's suddenly trying to find religion to save his butt before this windswept mass of people come and get him. Don't let it touch me. It's not they, it's it. You see what I'm saying? They're not even people. John Cabot itched instantly beneath the nourished white. Nourished white is such a phrase. That we would say today, privilege, right? That well, you know, to she's so much better than we are. I mean, we might, <laughs> you know, we might say privilege, but I mean, nourished. We've had these food images, but, you know, if it is the white body, it's a white body that's been nourished with heavy, over-rich food. But in a thrilling announcement on, it drove and breathed on him and touched him. In that breath, the fume of pigfoot chittering and cheap chili malign mocked John. The angel who he thought was so handy is in fact a black angel, an African-American angel, as one with the crowd, aligned with the views of the crowd, and thus coming with the fume of pigfoot chitlin and cheap chili. And in terrific touch, old averted doubt jerked forward decently, cried, Cabot, John, you are a desperate man, and the desperate die expensively today. John Cabot went down in the smoke and fire and broken glass and blood, and he cried, Lord, forgive these niggas that know not what they do. And that's how the poem ends. John Cabot is killed in the riot. He does not go down reformed. Of course, those have been the final words of uh, Jesus Christ. Forgive them for they not know what they do. And they, you know, nailing them to the cross. You know, it, it's all but impossible to feel sorry for John Cabot because the poem puts us readers in the uncomfortable position of feeling okay about his death. Right. That's an unusual strategy in a poem. It is, and it's the first for Gwendolyn Brooks. This was the first, and I think that it really upset a lot of people. 
primarily white people, mm-hmm. who read it and, and really dismissed it. And actually, it's one of her best poems. Is John Cabot a realistic character? Are we meant to take him as a fair representation of a wealthy white man in 1968? For Elizabeth Alexander, John Cabot is a stand-in for something bigger than one man. John Cabot is an idea. John Cabot is not literally there. He's an idea that's got to go. He's an idea that's obsolete. He's an order that can no longer stand. Haki Marabudi disagrees. John Cabot is a realistic character, he says, though he does admit that he's drawn a bit broadly. Uh, I think that obviously she piles on a little bit. <laughs> she does. Yeah, yeah she, she does. The bigger questions are, what does the poem say about the Chicago riots of 1968? And what did Gwendolyn Brooks think of the role of riots in African-American history? Haki Marabudi says that the poem is an expression of Gwendolyn Brooks's political evolution. Uh, she was beginning to understand that, that, that as, as King said, riot was the, the voice of unheard, but also recognizing that this was an uprising. This was a rebellion. These are empowering acts of young people and not so young people. And when you begin to understand the tradition of this country, nothing changed without rebellion. You know, whether it's the, the war against uh, England or the war between the states, it's a violent country. And so nothing changes without violence. And so this is how she, we looked at what was going on in the 60s and what's going on now in, in 2015. Mm-hmm. You look at a place like Ferguson, where the entire police department, except for me, one and two, are white, where the entire governing body, from the mayor to the city councils, are white, where essentially they were running a criminal enterprise by stopping black people and finding them for whatever reason, and if the black people could not pay the fine, they ended up in jail and the fines doubled and tripled. All right? So the whole enterprise, the whole Ferguson whole enterprise was a criminal activity. That has changed. That changed because of the uprising and the rebellion of people in Ferguson. I wish I could jump in with good news. But six years on, the changes are difficult to see. Sure, the Ferguson police chief resigned, a new black chief was appointed. Several black police officers were hired, and the quote-unquote criminal enterprise of the police, together with the municipal courts that used ticketing and court fees to generate revenue, was exposed and curbed. And maybe most importantly, because the murder of Michael Brown was never caught on camera, body cams were introduced, and by 2016, most police stations across the U.S. had bought them. But in 2017, the same white mayor of Ferguson, James Knowles III, was re-elected in this majority black city over Ella Jones, a city council member who would have become the first black mayor in the city's 122 years had she won. And according to an investigation by the New York Times from last year, even though municipalities can't earn nearly as much now from giving people tickets, Black drivers get actually fined more now, and it's the white drivers who are stopped significantly less. Meanwhile, the killings continue. According to the Washington Post, since 2015, across the country, police have shot and killed an average of three people a day, most of them young men. An unarmed black man is about four times more likely to be killed by police than an unarmed white man. 
and criminal charges against the police officers who killed these men are rare. Again, according to the New York Times, there has been no significant increase in prosecutions since Ferguson, let alone convictions. Blake Strode, who's the executive director of the legal advocacy group Arch City Defenders, which fought ticketing practices, told the New York Times that he knew very well why nothing has changed. And I quote, I understand the status quo to be one of structural racism, poverty, overinvestment in the carceral system and policing and prosecution, end quote. You know, I think if there's anything to take from this section today, it's that unjust orders cannot stand. Elizabeth Alexander says that in Gwendolyn Brooks' poem, John Cabot stands for the social order that's got to go. And after he's gone, Gwendolyn Brooks writes the next section of her poem, titled The Third Sermon on the Warpland. In this section, she imagines a future rooted in a spiritual, not just a material change. And it starts with a definition of phoenix from the dictionary. In Egyptian mythology, a bird which lived for 500 years and then consumed itself in fire, rising, renewed from the ashes. That's where we are after this unwell social order has gone down. Now it's like, what's going to rise from the ashes? And we're in Egyptian mythology. We're in a black cosmos. When we enter that poem, the earth is a beautiful place. And then in the next stanza, the black philosopher says. That black philosopher lays out a vision for how African-American life can be reborn out of the ashes of the riot. And the third poem in this series is a beautiful short lyric about lovers meeting for an intimate moment amid the turmoil in the streets. I think that's really important because I think that it lends tremendous depth to her critique, that she's not just satirizing an easy target, but rather she's saying, what does it mean to, quote, flail in the hot time? What does it mean for riot to be language of the unheard? How can we return to especially young people in black communities for the answer about what's next in what is apparently a perennial struggle? You can read Riot, the third sermon of the war planned, and many other poems by Gwendolyn Brooks on the Poetry Foundation website, where you can also find poems and essays by Elizabeth Alexander and Haki Madabuti. I truly wish we can now retire this episode forever. Many thanks to Curtis Fox for producing it. The music is by Todd Sikafus. Before I go, a quick update. Last night, around midnight, the news broke that in Ferguson, Ella Jones, the same black council member who was defeated at the polls last elections, has won. This makes Ella Jones the first black mayor of the majority black city of Ferguson, Missouri. I'm Helena Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>